Well, good morning, church. It is awesome worshiping Christ with you this morning. Thank you to, um, to Daniel and, and all of our musicians who, who helped lead us. And, and thank you uh, to all of you who sing. Um, choir and all of you, uh, what, a, what a joy it is to, to just come before him and, and give him our praise from our hearts. Um, before I get into our text, uh, I've got some, uh, what I think is encouraging and exciting news. Uh, the Lord brought Robbie Gray uh, into our church family's lives um, almost a year ago. Um, April 15th, I think, was his start date. And um, I tell you, it has been such a, a joy to have Robbie serving on our staff. Uh, the Lord's given him a, um, humility, uh, but also a very keen mind um, uh, for detail, which, which actually is really good for kind of complimenting me. Uh, and so I, I really appreciate his service. And uh, we elders have also enjoyed having Robbie as kind of an elder in training, uh, coming to our meetings over the last few months. Um, and uh, when, when Robbie has something to say, there, the wisdom comes out. And so we believe it is now time to um, present him before you as, uh, as an elder. Um, as you know, when we brought him in, we, we, we had him serving as a, as a minister. Um, but we believe that the scriptures teaches that elders and pastors are really the same, it's the same office. And uh, we believe that now it's time for Minister Robbie to become Pastor Robbie. And, and so um, we are going this week to have uh, uh, polling forms available. Um, we, we, we elders have met with Robbie. We've examined Robbie. We've, we've watched him uh, as he has lived his life. Uh, we see a life marked by a love for Christ and marked by integrity. And so now we'd like to submit him to you uh, for your feedback over the next three weeks. Uh, so as you leave, there will be polling forms available by the, uh, on, the, on the tables heading out um, outside, the, outside the, 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 the foyer. We ask you to grab one of those, and um, maybe while it's fresh, um, uh, if you have prayed about it, which you don't have to spend hours in prayer, um, maybe a quick shotgun prayer to the Lord uh, for, for, uh, for, for, for direction would be great. And, uh, and then drop that in the, uh, in, the, in the box, if you would. Uh, we'll have them available in the bulletins for the, ne- the next few weeks as well. But we really would love to hear from every member of the church, not just every family, but if you are a, an adult, uh, you've been baptized, you have um, been brought before the, the body and joined in membership as a follower of Jesus Christ, we want to hear from you. So whether you're a wife or a husband, we want to hear, we want to hear from you both. Or if you're a child in a family and you are a member, we'd love to hear from you as well on that. Uh, okay, so this is a, an exciting time for us, um, and uh, we are so thankful, and uh, so we look forward to hearing from all of our members. Well, in the text that um, Brother Bill just read for us, um, we, we see something that, that happened right after Jesus's, um, right after his, his long conversation in which he shares the gospel with, with Nicodemus. Um, we now see Jesus and his disciples moving out into the Judean countryside. And so uh, let's look at verse 22 through 24 again for a little bit of background context. We read that after this, that is Jesus' conversation with Nicodemus, from which we get John three sixteen and a lot of other deep spiritual truths of the gospel. Um, after this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salem because water was plentiful there. 
And people were coming and being baptized, for John was not yet put in prison. Now, now remember that, that John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. Before John, there, there were others who would baptize. If, if somebody was coming to Judaism, they, they came to understand that there was one true God, and they came to understand they were sinners. At this time in, in history, it was common to, to be baptized for proselytes to Judaism. And the symbolism was that their sins were being washed away. And, and they could then come and, and join the people of God on earth. Now, if they were a Gentile, they weren't yet allowed all the way into the inner courts of the temple, but there was the court of the Gentiles, which we have studied in weeks past. And, and so th- this is what John the Baptist did, except there was a twist on it. He baptized everybody. So if you were a Jew or a Greek, he baptized you because he was, he was pointing out sin. And it was a baptism of repentance before God. People wanting to get clean, and, and people were coming. In fact, folks were coming from, from Judea, from, from Jerusalem, and frankly, from all over to see this prophet and to be baptized. And so the baptisms now being conducted by Jesus' disciples were actually similar. Jesus had not yet fully revealed God's plan of redemption through his cross work, and he had not yet died on the cross. And so you now have two groups baptizing in the wilderness, a baptism of repentance. Now, John chapter 4 verse 2 actually uh, gives us a little more information that Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were baptizing. So what we have here in this context is two groups doing ministry for God's glory, not too far apart from, what, from, from each other. So what could possibly go wrong? Two churches, two mission teams trying to make disciples for God's glory, of course they're going to rejoice at each other's victories. And when, when, the, other, when the other side, the other group grows, they're going to they're praise God for adding to his kingdom, right? What could possibly go wrong? They're always going to lift each other up. Envy and criticism will never come into the picture, right? Well, wrong. Verse 25 says, now a discussion arose. Now, I think, I think we need to um, put a, you know, quotes around that word. Discussion. Kid, kids, have you ever seen your mom and dad have a discussion? So you know what this means, right? Maybe they're having an argument, and they realize that you're watching, and they say, mom, mom and I are having a, a discussion. Uh, maybe you're sitting in the back seat of the car while they have their discussion on the way to church. And they get there and smiles on the face, everything's wonderful, right? So <clears throat> that's what this word means. It's a discussion. So a discussion arose between some of John's disciples and a Jew over purification. Now, we, we don't really know much about the details of this discussion, but, but it seems that this Jew brought some questions to John's disciples that frankly threw gasoline on their fire of envy, okay? And so uh, the question was probably something like, hey, which baptism is better here? Jesus's over there or your guy, 
John's, which baptism will make me more pure? It was a discussion about purification. And so we see the, the results of that. Now, now John's disciples are fired up, okay? And so in verse 26, we read, And they came to John and said to him, Rabbi, not talking to Jesus, talking to John, Rabbi, he who is with you across the Jordan to whom you bore witness, look, he's baptizing, and all are going to him. Uh, just to clue you in, they weren't excited about the ministry of Jesus here. So, and, and notice here that John's disciples called him rabbi. Now, now in John, wherever we see rabbi, uh, except for here, people are talking to Jesus, right? This was a, a title of, of, of great importance and, and respect. It meant teacher, but authority. And so here they call him rabbi, and we need to remember that John had a prolific ministry. He was a celebrity wild man, okay, with a powerful voice and a wide following. In, in Matthew chapter 3, verse 4, we, we read a little more about John. Um, now John wore a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and wild honey. Uh, so this guy was, you know, kind of a crazy guy. You, you, you wonder if, you know, right away, I mean, he probably had, he had a diet that he probably had to acclimate towards. Normally you don't uh, enjoy locust with the first bite, you know. It's kind of like coffee or, or beer, as they say. Um, I wouldn't really know. But um, acquired taste, right? But now this guy eats uh, locusts and wild honey. And, and, and he's out there as this kind of ascetic wild man. And we read then that all of Jerusalem, or the Jerusalem and all Judea and all the region about the Jordan were going out to him, and they were being baptized in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. And, and we need to understand that John the Baptist's ministry was so powerful that he had an international following. Now, now why do I say that? Well, if you keep reading in the Bible and you get to Acts chapter 18, uh, verse 24, you, you're introduced to this powerful preacher named Apollos of Alexandria, which was a great city of, of North Africa, modern-day Egypt, right? It's on the coast of, of, of northern, northern Egypt. And so this guy named Apollos of Alexandria uh, walks into this great city called Ephesus, which is in modern-day western Turkey, so all the way across the Mediterranean. And, and it says that he knew only the baptism of John. So Apollos had uh, likely been baptized by John, and he's proclaiming this baptism of repentance. And then, of course, he learns more about the baptism of Christ and, and what all that means. But John was, a, it was an international celebrity preacher, and he had some very loyal disciples. And, and notice here that John is their hero, not Jesus. Notice, in fact, they called Jesus he who was with you across the Jordan, to whom you bore witness. And, and, and we, we read about this bearing of witness in the very first chapter of John. In John 1, verse 35, where, where we read, The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. And so, so John's ministry, actually, 
was, uh, was counterproductive to his own following. He, some of his own followers had then left his ministry and now we're following Jesus's ministry. And so it's possible that these disciples who have brought this complaint to John might even resent John a little bit for doing something in his ministry that was counterproductive, for sending his own disciples after Jesus. And, and notice that they exaggerate the situation. They say, all are going out to him. Well, that, that's actually not technically true. Some of them were still coming to be baptized by John and John's disciples. So what was John's response to his disciples' complaint? Well, these next verses that we're going to take a deeper dive into, verse 27 through 30, we read that, that John says, he must increase and I must decrease. John had a Christ-centered heart, and this was manifested in his attitude, in his purpose, and in his mission. So we're going to look at each of those as we look at these three basic statements that John makes. So first, in, in verse 27, let's look at John's Christ-like attitude, his Christ-like attitude. And we see this in his first answer, verse 27, John answered them, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given to him from heaven. So John understood that, that everything we have, our, our talents, our treasure, even our time, our position, our achievements, our, our, even our success, it's a gift from God. So if you, whether, you're a, whether you're a minister or you have a ministry that's prolific and growing, or maybe you're a business owner, and you think, I built that. No, everything you have, everything you have comes from God. The, the, the intellectual ability, the charisma, the very breath and time that you have to invest in your, in your work, everything you have, you're following, is a gift from God. It's been given to you from heaven. And, and what that means is, we should never be puffed up. We should also never try to hold on and grasp position when our star is fading. And you know what? That will happen. That, that will happen to me. That will happen to you. One day your star is going to fade and there are other people who are going to take the mantle and their star may be rising. And so somebody else will come along with more talent or more energy, or maybe a better idea. And, and so we need to realize that not only does every talent and everything come from God for us, but it's, the same is true for them. The, the very talents they have, the, the, the ideas they have, the, the following they have, that comes from God as well. And so the right attitude would be thankfulness instead of envy. Others are seeing conversions. Maybe we're not. What is the right attitude? Thankfulness to God. And we see an interesting story back in the book of Numbers. In Numbers chapter 11, verse 26 through 29, we, we see this, this right attitude here uh, in the life of Moses. 
So we read that now, now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the Spirit of God rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent, and so they prophesied in the camp. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, one of my heroes, by the way, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth said, my Lord Moses, stop them. What's he thinking? He's thinking, hey, these guys might steal your thunder, Moses. We got competition now. Stop them. But Moses said to him, are you jealous for my sake? Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. So Moses says, hey, these two are a great start. Uh, I, I wish that the Lord's spirit was on everybody. Now we, we've read stories. You've probably seen it on, on uh, social media or maybe even in the media itself. Maybe you've had conversations about this. But we've read stories in the last several weeks about revivals happening on, on the campuses of Asbury uh, University and Cedarville University and, and several other places. And uh, several, several people that I trust, uh, friends of mine, people who, are, who have the same theology I have, who have discerning spirits, uh, have, have actually attended the Asbury revival. And I've, I've been actually personally very interested to, to see what they saw what they experienced, what they discerned, and, and what they said after th- these personal friends of mine. Uh, I know there's been a whole lot of stuff written, and you may have read stuff that I haven't read, but what they had to say was it was not theatrics or emotionalism uh, designed to manipulate people. What they encountered was, was simple worship, genuine worship, reading of the Word, testimonies of God's work in people's lives, confession of sin, and a great palpable desire for more of Christ that has, that has, uh, that has um, resulted in just a, a palpable presence of God's Spirit. That's what they have said. Now, I think when we hear these stories about, wow, something's going on here at Asbury, um, and, and then later some, some other places, I think there's two dangers there may be more, but I, I see two sirens, one on the right and one on the left. And, and the siren on the, on the right would be skepticism, which could be motivated by envy, if you think about it. I've seen an article or two that we're skeptical, and, and it's not hard to, to imagine the motivation of envy. Well, how come we haven't experienced this in my church, right? Or I haven't experienced this in my life Therefore, I'm going to look at it through a glass half darkly and just try from the beginning to find something wrong with it. I'm going to try to find some kind of fault. And if you look at anything with a skeptical eye, you will find fault. So I can just discount that, pure emotionalism. Then on the other side, you, have, uh, you can have a tendency to say, well, I want that too. Let's replicate it with, with emotionalism. All right, and, and hey, there's, you know, there's a revival going on at my church here. And so let's bring out the, you know, let's bring out the fog machines and the, the lights and the emotionalism and the crazy stories. And, and let's try to kind of create something like this, generate something like this on our own. And I, I believe that's happened as, as well. Well, division, competition, 
and envy have sadly been a part of the church throughout history. And we see this actually in the very beginnings of the church. We read about this. Uh, Paul, while he was imprisoned in Philippi, he wrote in verse 15, he writes of chapter 1, some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. And then later he writes to the Corinthians, uh, uh, to believers in the city of Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 verse 10, he says, I appeal to you brothers by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ that all of you agree that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. What I mean is that each one of you says, I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, that's Peter, or the, the, the really you know, spiritual among them, um, I follow Christ. Is Christ divided? Was Paul crucified for you? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? So it might be easy for us to read texts like that and be like, man, get it together, you early Christians. Um, but what happens in our own heart when somebody else passes us up and, and their star eclipses ours or they even take from our following? Well, in the flesh, we want to tear down. But instead, let me encourage you in your own life, uh, when that happens, when, and this might not just even be in the church or in ministry, it might be in your own professional life, okay? And, and, and someone's star is rising, and, and frankly, they're even taking some of your thunder, some of your power they've got now. So how, how should you respond? Well, first of all, ask God for humility. Thank Him for the gifts and the opportunities that He has given you. And then pray for their success. Thank God for the, for the gifts that he has given to the one you're tempted to envy. Is that easy? No. But is it all about Christ or is it all about us? Right? John said, we're going to get there in a minute, he must increase, I must decrease. So pray for their success. And then I've got another, another tip here, and that is this. If you're tempted to say something negative to diminish the rising star of someone that, that you're tempted to think is a rival, go say something positive about them to someone. And be genuine about it, but look for something positive to say. The Christ-like attitude that we see here in, in, in John the Baptist is the attitude of Jesus Christ called humility. And, and we read about this so powerfully in, in Philippians chapter 2 verse 3 through 8, in which Paul writes, do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look out not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, right? held on to that position. But he emptied himself. And, and we could spend sermons talking about the, 
what's called the kenosis, the, the emptying of Jesus. And certainly he did not cease to be God, but he emptied himself of his divine prerogative so that he could do it right as a man, as an example for us. By taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. So John the Baptist here shows us this Christ-like attitude of humility. But he also shows us, and this is our second point this morning, Christ-centered purpose. Christ-centered purpose. This is what we see in verse 28 and 29. John basically says here to his disciples, my job is to point to Jesus, not to build the greatest ministry or to have the, the biggest following or the long, longest lasting platform. My job is to point to Jesus. And so he says in verse 28, You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, but I have been sent before him. And and this was John's God-appointed purpose in life. Jesus actually said this about him, that he fulfilled it well later in Matthew 11, verse 9. Jesus asks the crowd, what then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way before you. So Jesus, or John had been sent to prepare the way, to, to, to prepare hearts. And then when the Messiah came on the scene, to point to him and say, this is the one. And that's what he did. He was faithful to his Christ-centered purpose. He pointed people to Jesus. In John chapter 1, verse 29, we read, and the next day he saw Jesus coming towards him, and he said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Here he is. He's here. This is he of whom I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me because he was before me. Well, John here then continues to minister to his green with envy disciples. So he gives this interesting analogy in verse 29. He says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. So uh, what we have here is we have a bridegroom. Now, who is that? That's Jesus. And, and who's the bride? Yeah, the church. Now, in, in the Old Testament, you see, um, you see pictures of uh, Israel, the, the people, the old, old covenant people of God being a bride. In the New Testament, it's even more clear. His church is the bride. In Ephesians 5.25, we read husbands, this is, this is as Paul is, is pointing to Jesus and his church to tell husbands how we're to love our wives. He says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, you want an example, a, a modern day example uh, gentlemen, look to our brother Rick Kuka, who is with us this morning. And Rick, I don't mean to embarrass you, um, but, but yesterday we celebrated the homegoing of, of Rick's wife, Anna. Um, 47 years ago, um, Rick was a young Marine in Hawaii uh, with his new bride, 
And uh, the Marines weren't making it easy for him to spend time with her. So he went up to his, his, uh, his sergeant and, and said, hey, is there any way we could make some adjustments here? And as I understand it, his sergeant looked at him and said, son, if the Marines were interested in you having a wife, we would have issued you one. So, so, so Rick thought about that a little bit. And the next day he turned in his papers and said, I'm, I'm choosing my family, my wife, over my career. And you know what? Rick, you did that well, sir. He loved Anna well throughout his life. He made those decisions. And we've, we've seen Rick for the last seven years uh, as, as Anna's been in a home daily spending time with her. During COVID, uh, whether it was rain or shine, Rick was outside her window, not allowed in the manor for like a year, I think. Isn't that right? Something like that. Uh, outside her window, reading the Bible to her and praying for her so that she could just hear his voice. Uh, that's, that's loving your wife as Christ loved the church. Uh, he did it well. And, and, and so I, I hope uh, some of you brothers might spend some time with Rick. Uh, he's already modeled it, but ask him some questions. Um, ask him uh, how you can better love your wife as Christ loved the church. So, so what we see here is the bridegroom is Jesus. The bride is the church, and we could spend a lot of time talking about that, but that's not the main point here that John's making in this analogy, because he, he brings in one more position, and that is the friend of the bridegroom. And, and that is, John is saying, John, the Baptist. So what one scholar explained what the friend of the bridegroom's job was, okay? And so I'm going to read to you a little bit here. Um, we're getting into academia, but this is kind of interesting. Um, the friend of the bridegroom, the Shoshben, had a unique place at a Jewish wedding. He acted as the liaison between the bride and the bridegroom. He arranged the wedding. He took out the invitations. He presided at the wedding feast. He brought the bride and the bridegroom together. And he had one special duty. It was his duty to guard the bridal chamber and to let no false lover in. He would only open the door when in the dark he heard the bridegroom's voice and recognized it. When he heard the bridegroom's voice, he was glad and he let him in. And he went away rejoicing for his task was completed. Okay, now that's interesting. We're not going to um, get into all the details of that one. But even today, if you think about our practice today of a best man, right? Or a made of honor. What is their job, right? A good best man's job is to take care of the groom. You know, hey, you got a spot there on your tie. Uh, you, know, you know, fix your hair a little bit, right? Uh, hey, don't lose the ring. Here's the ring. I'm going to protect and guard the ring, right? Isn't that his job, right? And so a, a, a good best man may have his moment in the sun, you know, a toast, um, or something like that. But, but his job is to point to the groom and to care for him. And of course, the, the, the maid of honor does that as well for, for, the, for, the, for the bride. And so the bridegroom rejoices when the groom weds his beautiful bride. It would be a sorry bridegroom to stand there and just have uh, jealous thoughts. I wish she was mine. That'd be awful, right? What an awful uh, uh, best man that would be. His job, though, after he does his job and, and gives a toast is to do what? Fade from the scene. So the spotlight is now on this new happy couple. So 
Maybe you have a brother or a sister. I'm going to make a little application here. For, for, for John the Baptist, the, 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 the bridegroom was Jesus. That was his job to make him look good, to point to him, and then fade from the scene. Well, let's apply this to our lives a little bit. Maybe you have a brother or sister who passes you up, maybe even in ministry. It's more successful. Well, let me encourage you to, to make their happiness your happiness, just like a good best man or maid of honor. 1 Corinthians 12, 26 says, if, if one, talking about the church, if, if one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. That's the principle here. And I think a, a great Old Testament example of, of this very principle we're talking about is with David and Jonathan. Remember, Jonathan was the son of Saul, legal heir to the throne. But what happens? God chooses David to be his anointed one to succeed Saul. So, so Jonathan could have clearly envied David. I mean, talk, talk about almost a, a right. Who's this guy, this imposter? But instead, we read in 1 Samuel chapter 18, verse 1, that the soul of Jonathan was knit to the soul of David, and Jonathan loved him as his own soul. And you go back and you read those stories. Jonathan had David's back. Saul was temperamental, unstable, and his son Jonathan had David's back. William Law wrote, If someone is leaving you behind and you're becoming jealous and embittered, keep praying that he may have success in the very matter where he is awakening your envy. And whether he has helped or not, one thing is sure, that your own soul will be cleansed and ennobled. And that you will grow a little nearer to the stature of the Baptists. I thought that was kind of neat. So John had a Christ-like attitude. And he had a Christ-centered purpose. Finally, John had a Christ-exalting mission. And that's what we see in verse 30. He understood his mission. And he's, he put it this way, and this is our sermon title. He must increase, and I must decrease. Now, this is not easy stuff. Right, I, was, I was convicted as I was going to sleep last night that I actually struggle with this. As I thought about it more, I realized, you know what? I might actually need this sermon more than anybody else in the room. But maybe, maybe you're here this morning and, and the Lord has this for you because you are struggling with some of these things, right? You see somebody else uh, sprouting and excelling or another group uh, passing you up, and, and your, your gut is to just, hey, let's, let's put them down um, and, and exalt self here. Uh, this is hard stuff, but you know, this is good stuff. There, there, is, there is great freedom here when we don't try to hang on to personal power. If our, if our personal mission in life is ultimately to exalt Jesus, then, then all we got to do is point to him. That's what life's all about. I, I don't have to outdo everybody else in the room in order for my existence to be justified. Some of you might know what I'm talking about. Some of you may be like, what's this knucklehead talking about? Um, I don't have to be the very best of the best in order to be worth the air that I breathe. But you know what? We live in a type A community, and I love it. Awesome. Military community uh, where people are trained to aim high, to be the best you can be. 
And you know what? We've got a pretty type A church, just to be straight with you. And I know I'm a type A guy myself. All right? So sometimes it takes one to know one. And, and we do. We want to do our best. We want to excel. But sometimes we think we've got we to gotta do better than everybody else. Otherwise, we're just a failure. We're just not worth the air that we breathe. And, if, and we want to leave a mark. We want people to know we were here. It's like we're trying to validate our existence. But so I think some of you know what I mean. And, and you know what? This idol of vanity often tragically is what keeps us from being closer to God and, and enjoying him and actually fulfilling the purpose that he has designed us for to point to him instead of ourselves. In other words, it ain't about you. It's not about me. My, my mission is to know Jesus and to make him known to others. And so that means I've got to want him. I've got a desire to lift him up in others' lives instead of myself. You know, as, as William Carey lay dying, he, he begged a friend to, to don't talk about me when you look back at my life and my work. Talk about Christ. That was his desire. Talk about Jesus. Don't turn me into some hero. There's only one hero. That's Jesus Christ. More of Jesus, less of me. That's what Paul meant when, when he wrote in Philippians 3, 8, Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. So when we think about these revivals that we read about, right? Why are people flocking to these revivals? As I understand it, I'm not even sure if it's still fully going on, but as I understand it, so many people were showing up in this little town where Asbury College is that frankly they didn't have enough bathrooms for everybody. And it became a real problem for the town. And, and you know, the, and if you're a college, you got to have classes. And so the revival was kind of getting in the way of life, right? So why would people stand for hours in the rain to walk into a room? And my friends who have attended said, actually, the music was okay. It wasn't like amazing, like incredible. It was, as far as the talent goes, it was just okay. But there was a sense, a palpable sense of God's presence, and, and these folks want that. They want his presence, more, more of Jesus. So I, I read this last week a note that the president of Cedarville University, Thomas White, wrote to his faculty and staff on Thursday, February the 16th, 10 days ago. And, and this was the, the Thursday. I think the whole thing got kicked off at their place on Monday. And it wasn't something he engineered or planned for. Okay, and he just, he wrote, and he kind of talked about it. Hey, I mean, I, I preached a message. Uh, I was actually a little bit worried about, you know, the next period because all these students started coming up and wanted to stay, but I realized, hey, we couldn't just do business as usual. So he explains what all happened and how his faith had been a little too small. But then he closes his letter to his faculty and, and staff by saying, friends, I don't know what the Lord is doing. Are we having a revival on campus? I, I think it's too soon to declare that. Maybe we're seeing a unique outpouring of the presence of God, or maybe we just experienced a few days of special worship. We must keep the marks of genuine revival before us. We should see confession of sin, repentance, salvations, Jesus being exalted, and the word of God being held high. We must maintain a humble posture with no exaggerations as to what is happening, seeking to avoid fabricating something through emotional events on one side, 
or hindering the work of the Spirit through skepticism on the other side. A genuine work of God must be organic. I'm hearing that God is moving in a similar way on other campuses. The Lord is doing something unique and special at five universities that I'm personally aware of, and I suspect even more. So how do we prepare our own lives just in case God decides to do another great awakening in our country? Well, here are some thoughts from Bill Eliff, pulled from the primary message of the Welsh revival where 100,000 were saved in nine months. And there are four things that he lays out. They're simple, but they're real. Number one, confess all known sin. Number two, lay aside every doubtful habit. Number three, obey the Spirit promptly. Number four, confess Christ openly. And he finishes by saying, let's make sure that we stay humble and give all credit to God. We desire that Jesus Christ be honored above all. So I pray that the spirit of John the Baptist will be true in our lives, corporately, in your life, individually. And, and what, what, one thing we want to do, and we elders at our meeting last Tuesday night uh, recognized that we talked about this a little bit. In the past, after, at the close of a service, if the Lord's Spirit was doing something in, in, in your heart, we, we had elders up here, uh, so that you could come and ask for prayer, pray with somebody, maybe confess your sins to another Christian and have them pray for you. Maybe confess a struggle and ask them to, 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 to fight with you in the journey. Um, and, 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 and so um, what we're going to do from now on, from this morning on, um, uh, the, the elder who reads the scriptures to you will be standing right somewhere down here right in front of this piano during the closing song and right after the service. And it's not to be emotionalism or showtime, but if there's something that you need uh, one of your pastors to pray for you about, please um, uh, obey the Spirit promptly. Okay? Please don't let inhibition keep you from asking for prayer. Or for turning to the person sitting next to you. Or coming up to me and, and saying, would you pray for me? We want to pray together. Right? Uh, remember, a, a, a lone ranger Christian is a dead ranger. A, a, a pretender showing up and acting to have it all together when you don't, that doesn't help anybody lift Jesus up. We, we sung this morning some amazing songs about Jesus. We, we sung that all I have is Christ. Jesus is my my life. And, and we sung, in, in Christ alone, my hope is found. Is that true of your life? Do, do you want that to be true of your life? Do you want more of God's presence in your life? Uh, if so, ask him for it. Join with us, with another Christian, in praying for that. For he must increase, and, and we must decrease. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we do humbly ask you to give us more of yourself. We recognize that we are sinners full of pride and, and envy, um, arrogance, oftentimes just thinking about ourselves. But Lord, we know that that does not lead to joy. We know that, that Christ in us is what leads to joy. So we ask for more of you in our lives. We pray that you would Fill our hearts and this place with your spirit. In Jesus' name I pray, amen.